God. Thanks be to God. During the scripture readings this morning, it was almost like we had two dueling or different perspectives of the work of the Holy Spirit. We have the infamous Acts chapter 2 chapter that Corey read at length. And to me, that's always been really flashy and bright and, and fancy. And it includes tongues of fire and the miraculous. It's almost magical. And then you have our buddy Philip in John chapter 14, who feels like he's just trying to figure out the Christianity thing. He just doesn't understand who the Holy Spirit is. And that's when he looks to Jesus and he says, Lord, will you just show us the Father and then we'll be satisfied? Could you just do that? Wouldn't that be easier? But it's easy for us to look at Philip and say, man, he just does not get it. He just doesn't get it. But when I hear these questions from Philip, he kind of reminds me of Nicodemus. You remember Nicodemus in his own confusion says, well, how can we enter again into our mother's womb? How can we be born again? Or maybe in the confusion of the woman at the well who looked at Jesus and said, sir, you don't have a bucket. You don't have anything to draw water out of this well, where are you going to get that living water? Where does it come from? Or maybe the confusion of the man who sat next to the pool of Bethesda, who said, I don't have anybody to put me into this pool where the water is stirred and people are healed. And when I try to get there, somebody always walks in front of me. How are you going to make this work, Jesus? And then we have Thomas in chapter 14, a little bit before where we read, when we picked up in verse 8, he started in verse 1, and he said to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? How can we know the way? All of these people were confused. And, P and Philip was confused just like the others. And when he hears Jesus proclaiming to Thomas that he was the way and the truth and he is the life, Thomas, he, he declared all that to Thomas, Philip felt like that was impossible. He felt like it was too difficult. Wouldn't it just be easier, Jesus, if you could just show us the Father? Wouldn't it just be easier? But today is Pentecost Sunday, a day where we remember the gift that is given to humanity and to the church, a day where we realize that when we yearn for new life like Nicodemus or spiritual hydration like the woman at the well or for healing like the man at the pool or for guidance for the unknown like Thomas or for knowledge of his promises like Philip, that we not only enter a corporate Pentecost, where the church receives the Holy Spirit, but a personal one, an intimate one, one where we can acknowledge the inner workings of the Spirit in our lives, the inner workings of the Holy Spirit who has a relationship with us and a spirit that delivers on the promises of God. So what do we do with this great gift? What do we do with the promises of God? Well, in verse 12, Jesus goes on to say, Verily, truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works 
that I do and will do greater works than these because I am going to the Father. Well, as 21st century Christians, how do we do the work of Jesus? Does it look like tongues of fire like we saw in Acts 2? Is that what it has to be? What does the work of Jesus look like for me today? As many of you know, I grew up a Pentecostal believer. This was our day. I was saved, baptized, and called to preach among people that ran the aisles and held all-night prayer events and begged God for signs and wonders, for evidence of his work and his power in our lives. We needed to see it. We would ask for tongues and healings and prophecies. We needed to see it. For years, I would walk up to any human sitting in a wheelchair and believe that the prayers that I prayed would cause them to walk. And I believed it deep in my heart. Now, I don't say any of that this morning to belittle the faith or the faith practices of earnest fellow believers. But for years, personally, I thought that the greater works of the gospel, the greater works that I was supposed to do, was just simply do more healings than Jesus did. But if we step back and genuinely ask the question, what is the greater work of Jesus? What are the works we're called to do? Is the greatest work that Jesus ever did, was it giving sight to the blind man? Or was the greatest work that Jesus ever did giving hope to Nicodemus? Was the greatest work that Jesus ever did giving acceptance and inclusion to the woman at the well? Was the greatest work that Jesus ever did was actually seeing that lame man in the pool? besides walking past him? Was the greatest work that Jesus ever did, was it giving the path and the purpose to Thomas? Was the greater work that Jesus did, was it giving the comfort and assurance to our friend Philip in this passage? At some point, we must accept that the greater work of Jesus might not be fancy and flashy and cool. The greater work that the Holy Spirit empowers us to perform may be healings in some cases, but more often than not, it's probably accepting those in the margins. It's truly seeing the hurting, and it's consistently declaring hope in a world that so often seems so hopeless, so very hopeless. I know that I need the Holy Spirit to do that work. Because I need the Holy Spirit to share that hope. When my soul is weary and prejudice and hate seem all around, I need the Holy Spirit to show me how to do the works of Jesus. To steal the verbiage of Rob Bell from our first Tuesday study, if that is what a bird's eye view of the work of Jesus is, then what is the street view? How does that practically work? What can we really do well our backpack giveaway is on the horizon as most of you know and we're going to do things slightly different this year last year we gave away 240 backpacks my goal this year is around 300 but the biggest change that we want to make is our time and location uh, this week i put the deposit down on the pavilion at olive branch park um, the one that's closest to the pond. So as you're turning around that curve. So our goal is on August 4th, which is a Sunday, 
to cancel morning services, to meet at the park, to have a brief devotional maybe, but what we're really going to do is have buckets full of coolers with water because it's probably going to be hot and tables and tables and tables full of backpacks. We're going to do the work of Jesus together because the greatest work Jesus ever performed had to be when he showed me how to love my neighbor. The greatest work that Jesus ever could perform is when he showed us how to love those made in the very image of God. To give and to demand nothing in return. To love without expectation of reciprocation. To sacrifice our time to be present with people. To do the work of Jesus, we need the Holy Spirit. We need to occasionally get out of these four walls and find our neighbor. And as we read John 14, Jesus says, if we love him, we will keep his commandments. And I know when I was younger, I used to read that text, and I would read it like, to prove that you love God, you must keep his commandments. But that's not what the text says. And that's not how I think God wants us to live our lives. Christianity was never designed to be behavior modification. What the text is simply saying is when you do love God, the first commandment, well then you will love others, that second commandment. We keep his commandments by loving God. By loving him, we love others. As the indwelling of love that is the Holy Spirit exists within us, we are compelled by that love to be the beacons of hope and justice to our neighbors. And at the end of chapter of the chapter we read in verse 27, we get this kind of charge from Jesus after reminding the disciples of the greater works and to keep his commandments and that the advocate will help us with all those things. Jesus says, peace I leave with you, peace I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. This week when I went to the Parks and Rec Department to fill out um, some paperwork, I took the girls along, obviously, as always. They're always in tow. And we were driving on that road that goes through the park. Um, and as typical summer, summer day at Olive Branch Park, there is one bajillion geese. I don't know if that's even the right way to say that, um, bajillion. Um, no, but there's geese everywhere. And as you know, the geese at the park are not the nicest things ever. And at one point, we were stopped in the street for what felt like 10 minutes um, to let 45 geese pass on the road. You just couldn't go anywhere. Um, but Eden looked at me, and she goes, does it hurt when a goose bites you? And I was like, yes, definitely. And she said, well, when's the last time a goose bit you? And I was like, well, I've never had a goose bite me. I don't think I've ever done anything to tick a goose off enough to bite me. And after we clarified that verbiage that she didn't understand, she said, so you've never made a goose mad? And I was like, no, I've never made a goose mad. And she said, so if I'm getting this right, geese only attack if you make them mad. And I was like, well, not really. I mean, animals, almost all animals aren't really angry. They're scared. They're scared that you're going to take their food, to harm them because we're bigger. 
going to hurt their babies. They're just scared. Geese aren't mean as much as they're scared little animals. They're scared. And then as we were stopped there for another eternity, I said, you know, most of the time people are angry. They're just scared. They're just scared. People are scared of being hurt or harmed or their life changing or scared that things won't work out the way we want them to or scared that things won't be good. We're just scared. Most anger is fear. So when Jesus ends this conversation he's having with Philip and he is saying, peace I leave to you and don't be afraid, it's almost a proclamation that the opposite of fear, I mean, sorry, that the opposite of peace is not war, it's fear. The opposite of peace is fear. But when we choose fear over peace is when we always end up doing something harmful to others. We are the geese that attack. When we choose fear over peace, we wage war with our neighbor. We begin to find reasons why our neighbor being different is scary. We're afraid of them. We begin to rationalize how they can harm us, and then we justify our attacks. We're no different than the geese. But it's in those minutes where we have failed to love our neighbor. This week, a volunteer faith organization called No More Deaths was prosecuted, declared guilty, and faced up to six months in federal prison for leaving water in a desert. For leaving water in a desert between the border of the U.S. and Mexico, a desert where countless people have died from dehydration in the last decade. Now, my goal this morning is not and will not be to rehash immigration law, but at some point we have to be honest with ourselves as Christian people and say that no human is so scary that they should be denied water in the desert. No human is so scary that they should be denied water in the desert. People are made in the image of God. The refusal to help is almost an attack. And that when Jesus says, I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink, he is speaking of all people, regardless of race or age or ethnicity or immigration status. All people are our neighbor. So we must choose. We must choose peace over fear as a people, as a church. As Christians. I know that when I was younger in youth group, a really cool thing to say was if you were on trial for being a Christian, would you be convicted? And I also always thought that was crazy. But in instances like this, I hope I would be convicted. I hope God will find me doing the work of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. I hope that I would leave water in the desert. We must choose our peace over our fear. And in a moment, we're going to gather around the communion table. And we're going to break bread with our neighbors. 
And we're going to choose our neighbor over fear. We're going to choose the table of the Lord over fear. And we must ask the Holy Spirit for help because we cannot do it on our own. In John chapter 14, we were promised an advocate. We were promised an indwelling of a spirit that would not leave us. And we need him. We need him to work in our lives. I need him to take communion. I need the Holy Spirit to parent my children. I need the Holy Spirit to be a good human. We need him today. And may we constantly pray to the advocate. Let us pray.